As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so Matt, you want to hear a joke about a balloon? Well, yeah. Oh, wait, it just got away from me. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. It would have been over your head anyway, so. Oh. <laughs> oh. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? I am... Pretty good. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I am. Long dramatic pause. That's right. Pretty good. Fair to Midland. Right. It's, at least it's not freezing anymore. I have to say that. We've thought, we've thought out. Yeah. I finally thought out just uh, today and it was all that crap happened a week ago and I'm finally not cold anymore. I was going to say, at least we never lost power through all this. Man, you were struggling. Oh, dude, it was bad. We had, uh, it was about 53 hours of time that our power was on and off. And in that 53 hours, I think we had six hours of electricity. So it'd come back on and you'd try to turn the heat up real high and warm the house back up because you knew it was going to go off in another hour or two. And, yeah. uh, you know, and to be honest, we were pretty lucky considering because there was there's a lot of people that had it a lot worse than we did. Um, yeah, that's, that's bad. That was bad deal down there. Oh yeah, ours ours was miserable. So I can't imagine the people that had it worse. You know, losing water, water pipes busting, or you know, in in a house that not quite as insulated as ours is. And I mean, it it was cold in here, but I, I can't imagine. Uh, it was, it was wild. Um, but real quick, we want to tell everybody, go check out the Podbelly network, go to podbelly.com and you can check out other shows to listen to and some tips and tricks on how to record your own show. If you want to do that, we want to thank tonight's sponsor native. We'll talk a little bit more about them a little bit later. Um, while we're on the topic, um, go give us a rate and review if you could, um, if you have not already, thanks to all of you who have given us a review. Um, but if you can give us a review and then say a little something on there, it helps 
with the iTunes algorithm for some reason. No idea. People more intelligent than Matt and I wrote the algorithm, so we don't know how it works. Um, But it does help us get up in the charts and it allows people to find us easier and it may suggest us to other listeners so we can grow the graveyard. Right. Right. And I I don't know how algorithms work. No, I I just just learned that word the other day. So (laughs) (laughs) I I just I just looked it up as a matter of fact. (laughs) Right. Um So we, uh, Matt and I have been discussing this and, and wanted to give you all a little heads up. It's tentative right now, but we're thinking about doing another live stream in April. Um, we don't know the exact date yet, but it'll be like the last time it'll be live stream on Facebook and it'll be free. So once we figure out a day and all that, we'll let you know. But after you hear this episode or while you're listening, if you would be interested in that, you know, hit us up some way, either email or, you know, Facebook group or Twitter, Instagram, whatever, whatever your social media preference is, hit us up on there and let us know if you would be interested in joining us for another live stream. We think it's going to be fun and we've been waiting to do one. We, we have missed it. We enjoyed the last one so much and we just need to do it again, Matt. Yeah, I think so. And they are a lot of fun and it's a good way for you guys to interact directly with us live, um, you know, throwing out comments, asking questions. Um, we, we've talked to, we've talked about a few different topics we might bring up. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good time and, uh, it's totally free and, you know, you get to, you get to hang out with us for an evening. So, right. And, you know, I mean, might be a waste of your time hanging out with us two goobers, but come on, waste your time. You know, uh, it's look, it's free. We realize that there may be a time where it, we have to pay you. to come <laughs> Right. Right. But for now, you know, free for everybody. It, it may you cost know, us eventually, but join the live stream and get your two dollar graveyard check. <laughs> right. We'll send you a sticker. Um. So before we get into it, Matt, we um, we were just talking about the the snow and stuff down here, and I thought you would find this funny, and so would everybody else. Um, snow is, you know, it's covered the road. We ended up getting about five inches or so in our area, which is unprecedented for our part of Texas. Um, and so we we busted out the four by four. Um, we you know, dropped it into low gear and went to tooling around. And I learned how to drive on snow many years ago. So it, it was just fun to me. And then I've got this four by four. So it, it, uh, she did great. We'll say that. Um, yeah, but we we're driving down the, the main road here and there's this little Creek that runs under the road. So a little bridge that goes over it. And on the side, there is, the big metal rail to keep um, people walking from falling off into the creek. And then there's a little concrete about waist high, um, like railing type thing at the street level um, or at the street side. So we're driving by and we see this kid over on that concrete part. He is very detailed and, and, you know, very focused on creating a snow wiener. 
and <laughs> it's like the whole anatomical thing there and you can tell he's been there doing it for a while and he's like sculpting it and you know taking his time doing it and i started laughing i couldn't get a picture of it um because we kind of noticed what it was too late you know as you're going uh, by yeah. and uh but Ashton and I were laughing about it. She brought up a good point. She said, you never see those things in creation. You always see the aftermath, <laughs> you know, so right. you drive by and somebody's got one, you know, made there and, and you see it, but you never see someone actually building it. So we, we feel like we hit the jackpot on this and we actually saw <laughs> the, uh, the creation of the snow wiener. <laughs> That's great. So it, it, yeah, it was the highlight of us being without power, we drove around and saw snow wieners being made. Yeah, well, I pulled a Clark Griswold by pulling out uh, it, uh, river river tubes. We pulled out mm-hmm. our river tubes, and I put I sprayed uh, the bottoms with uh, silicone <laughs> spray. There you go. There you go. That's why Matt is in a cast today. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, it was fun. Yeah, I bet it was. We. We thought about doing that, but um, we, you know, we we're like, eh, probably not the best hills around here. And then yeah. when we figured out what a good hill was, it was filled up with people. And we're like, well, we're oh, not yeah, doing that. Yeah. So, yeah. Amanda got up one morning. She's like, oh, my God, why am I so sore? I said, because we <laughs> acted like we were in the X Games yesterday. Right. That's why. Right. Acted <laughs> like teenagers and <laughs> body can't do that anymore. So before we get into it, um. This is a topic that was brought up probably the first month of us recording and and putting out Graveyard Tales episodes. And maybe even the first night. Yeah, it could have been the first night. Um, But like it was super early and we put it on the list and we go back to it all the time uh, throughout the three years that we've been doing this, almost four years that we've been doing this. we we go back to it occasionally and we talk about it and you know it just didn't seem to be the right time whatever but yeah. for for some reason now i guess is the right time so this is this is an episode that has been in the works for about 4 years mm-hmm. um so enough of me prattling on here matt why why don't you tell us what are we talking about tonight brother okay so tonight it's going to be a little bit different. Um, we're going to we're going to uh, give you a, a review of Area Fifty One and the Roswell incident. We are going to discuss the the Fugo experiment, and then we're going to talk about how they may or may not be connected. Right. Right. Now, you know, everybody, everybody, I think, probably knows what Area 51 is. Mm-hmm. Um, you might not know what Fugo is. But w- when you're done, um, w- when we're done tonight, your your tinfoil hat is going it, to, it's going <laughs> to look like a, a, you know, Captain Crunch right. hat, you know? <laughs> right. It's going it, to be the finest tinfoil hat you've ever seen. <laughs> It's almost a, this episode is almost a little sneak peek into what Matt and I sitting around um, discussing episode <laughs> topics is, you know. This is this is what becomes of our discussions. Right. So, right. So so s- sit back and enjoy this. 
But as I said, you know, I would say most any of our adult listeners know about Area 51. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And if you didn't, you certainly heard about the planned raid of the base back in 2019. It was Lord, all over the yeah. news. But trust me, we're, we're not going to bore you with a link, lengthy discussions of about Area 51 that you've heard dozens of times. But we're going to give you kind of an Area 51 in a nutshell, uh, just to refresh your memory, as it's going to be important to what we get into later. Now, Area 51... Uh, you may or may not know, is home to the, the nation's overhead surveillance program, okay? It it actually serves a purpose. It's not just sitting out in the desert to some mysterious <laughs> little place. It sure? actually has a function. <laughs> and, and starting in the 1950s, it's where some of the most important spying aircraft in American history were assembled, tested, and ultimately sent out on missions. In the early 1950s, U.S. planes were conducting these low-flying recon missions over the Soviet Union, but there were always worries of them being spotted and shot down. So in 1954, Eisenhower authorized the development of a top-secret high-altitude recon aircraft that was called Project Aquatone. Aquatone sounds like a moisturizer you put on after you go out in the sun for a while. Yeah, right. It's the uh, uh, the prelude to Aquanet. You do Aquatone first, and then you spray on the Aquanet. <laughs> or it's what you use after Coppertone. Oh, yeah, there you it's go. Aquatone. Coppertone dries you out. Aquatone rehydrates you. And neither of those things have anything to do with Project Aquatone. <laughs> <laughs> but the program required a remote location that wasn't easily accessible to civilians or foreign spies. And so Area 51 pretty much fit the bill. Now, Area 51 is in the Nevada desert near a salt flat called Groom Lake, which is a name that's sometimes used in reference to the base. Now, officially, the base is called Homey Airport. And it's administered by Edwards Air Force Base in California. Right. Now, no one really knows why it's called Area 51, but one theory suggests that it came from its proximity to the Nevada nuclear test sites. So, And close to Area 50, you know. Well, it's between yeah, well, Area 50 and Area 52, so, you know. Yeah, that's right. Between, <laughs> but actually, no. Um, they, don't, they don't go up that high. Yeah. So, so the Nevada test site is divided into numbers designating areas by the Atomic Energy Commission, and this location was already familiar territory to the for the military, um, as it had served as a World War II uh, aerial gunnery range. Right now, when you look at them, and you can look, there's a map of of the Atomic Energy Commission and, and all the numbered sites, and it's theorized that they chose Area 51 because that was a number that most likely wouldn't be used. Sure. Um, so it wouldn't be confused with any of the other ones. It's actually close to Area 15. Oh, so wow. So they kind of look like, well, maybe they just transposed those numbers yeah. and made it 51. But we, we really don't know why, yeah. why they chose that name. True. Um, you mentioning you can go on and look uh, reminded me. You and I talk a lot uh, about the synchronicities with our episodes because it always seems like when we do an episode, 
I'll be watching TV one morning and something comes on about an episode that we're doing, right? Mm -hmm. So yesterday morning, I'm watching Mysteries of the Abandoned, and uh, this thing came up in the Nevada desert, and apparently there is a big swastika drawn out in the middle of the desert real close to Area 51, and they're trying to figure out why this is, and... You know, they make it real dramatic and takes 30 minutes to get through it when I can explain it here in a few seconds. Um, That swastika then has concentric rings around it. And then if you go up a little bit, about a mile from it in the desert is the outline of a battleship. And then a mile to the left of it or so is an outline of what looks like a nuclear facility that's drawn in the desert that because that area was a bombing range during world war two, they used that to practice bombing. So they would put this big target with a swastika on there because they're fighting Nazis. So they, you know, kind of, they said to incense the pilots a little bit, uh, they put the swastika out there and they would drop bombs and practice hitting it. So they've got a battleship shaped thing, a nuclear type facility shaped thing so they could Mm -hmm. practice where they're hitting. And I just thought that was really cool, you know, Um, because if you look at like the the maps of that area, you can see these weird shapes and it's real close to Area 51. Ah, well, you know, as it should be, you know, that, you know, that's what they used it for. Right, right. Now, In the summer of 1955, sightings of unidentified flying objects were reported around Area 51. Now, that's because the Air Force had begun testing the U-2 aircraft. Mm -hmm. The U-2 can fly higher than 60,000 feet. That's crazy. Okay, so now, to give you some perspective. Especially for the time. Yeah, yeah. At the time, normal airliners flew in the 10,000 to 20,000 foot range, mm-hmm. okay? Military aircraft topped out around 40,000 feet. So if a pilot, let's say a commercial pilot flying around 15,000 feet, happened to look up and saw the U-2 above it, right? they wouldn't have any idea what it was. Right, right. And they would usually call back to air traffic control and let them know something's out here. Yeah, we got a UFO up above us. That's right. And that led to the increase of UFO sightings in the area. Now, the Air Force officials knew the UFO sightings were U-2 tests, but they couldn't really tell the public. <laughs> right. So so they explained the aircraft sightings by saying they were natural phenomena or high-altitude weather research. Mm-hmm. Now... The base has seen its share of other unique and strange-looking aircraft that have nothing to do with extraterrestrials. Area 51 played a key role in the development and testing of additional spy planes after the U-2, including the SR-71 Blackbird and its predecessor, the A-12. Now, if you've ever seen either one of these planes, now I had a poster of the SR-71 in my room as a kid. They're so cool looking, man. They're so cool. And, and, you know, I've, I've got a really cool story about the SR-71 I'll have to share another time. But anyway, right. um, now, now, you know, these planes look 
spectacular, even by today's standards. Mm-hmm. But in the 1960s, it was unlike anything anyone had even imagined. So it's reasonable to believe that if civilians just happened to get a glimpse of one of these planes in the sky, it would be mistaken for something otherworldly. Oh, yeah, for sure. Even but, nowadays, possibly, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, you know, look at stuff like the stealth bomber. And the, mm-hmm. I mean, those planes look crazy. They don't look like anything else flying. Right. So, I mean, you, you see one and you don't realize that this thing exists and you're like, holy cow, what is that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's what it is. And the military is not going to tell you they got it because <laughs> right. it's secret. Sure. Sometimes secrets are okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> we just got to remember that sometimes it's better not knowing. <laughs> right. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> but but how did we go from pilots reporting UFOs to a government cover-up of alien bodies being kept and studied secretly within the confines of the base? Well, in the 1950s, folks in the area could see something flying much higher than anything they had ever witnessed. Combine that with the reflection of the setting sun giving the plane a fiery appearance from the ground. And you have multiple UFO sightings. Now, the Air Force would check reports against flight records for the spy planes and confirm that it was not a UFO. But again, they couldn't exactly tell people what it was. And it really doesn't do a lot of good to tell everybody about your secret spy planes, does it? Right. So it ends up not being a secret. Yeah. So they default to the high altitude weather research line. Mm hmm. But the conspiracy, at least the one we all know, actually dates back to 1947 when what was reported as a military balloon crashed near Roswell, New Mexico. Now, the official report says that the balloon had been launched from Alamogordo Army Airfield a month earlier. It carried a radar reflector and classified Project Mogul sensors for experimental monitoring of Soviet nuclear testing. Right. Okay. Remember, we're, you know, this is this is like the beginnings of the Cold War. You know, the, sure. the Russians are going to come and blow us all away. You know, yeah. this was this was the mindset here. And and we knew, uh, we know now that that stuff did go on. Yeah. So, you know oh, yeah. that that is a legit thing. Absolutely, Project Mogul was a real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, freedom of information. You know, all that information's out there now. Yeah, and a lot of other tests we may still not know about. True. Now, William Ware Mac Brazel reported finding debris on a ranch near Corona, New Mexico, which is about 80 miles northwest of Roswell. Now, he returned to the ranch uh, and recovered part of the wreckage of the balloon which he had placed under some brush in order to come back and pick it up later. Now, Braswell then hurried back to Roswell where he reported what he found to the sheriff's office. The sheriff called Roswell Airfield and Major Jesse Marcel, uh, who was a uh, 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Officer, was assigned to this case. Now, Colonel William Blanchard who was commanding officer of the bomb group, reported the find to General Ramey, and the object was flown immediately to Roswell Airfield. Now, on July 8th, 
1947, the Roswell Daily Record reported that the intelligence office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced that they had come into possession of a flying saucer. All right? Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we get somebody that witnesses this crash, collects the debris, okay, reports to the sheriff's office. Sheriff's office calls, you know, the, the airfield. They come get it, take it away, and then w- within 24 hours, you're getting a news report that the Army is saying they've got a flying saucer. Right. So... Panic ensues, right? Sure. Well, hey, maybe not panic, but excitement for sure. Yeah. The I mean, the wild crazies of holy crap, they admitted to yeah. something starts. Pretty much. And and the story made worldwide headlines, but less than twenty four hours later, the military backed off of that story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So July 9th. 1947, in an Associated Press article, it was reported that the debris that was found by Brazel was actually from a weather balloon. And Warrant Officer Irving Newton, who was a forecaster at the Army Air Force's weather station, said, quote, we use them because they go much higher than the eye can see. Now, Newton said when the, when the device was rigged up, it looks like a six-pointed star with a silvery appearance and rises in the air like a kite. But in Roswell, the excitement was palpable. Sure. And Sheriff Wilcox said that his phone lines were jammed with calls, some from as far away as England, wanting more information about the recovered object. Now, Wild that at the time you were getting calls from England and stuff to right. Roswell, you know, little bitty town in New Mexico there. Yeah. Now, believe it or not, this is where the story pretty much fizzles out. Hmm. It, it pretty much ends right here. Until 1978, when UFO researchers, uh, Stanton Friedman, who we talked about before, yep. William Moore, Carl Flock, and the team of Kevin D. Randall and Donald R. Schmidt interviewed several hundred people who claimed to have had a connection with the events at Roswell back in 1947. Ain't that some Schmidt? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so hundreds of documents were obtained via FOIA requests, and their conclusions were at least one alien spacecraft crashed near Roswell, alien bodies had been recovered, and a government cover-up of the incident had taken place. All right. So uh, 30 years go by. Right. Nobody's talking about this. Until these guys start investigating, and now we've got a full-blown, you know, spaceship crash, alien bodies recovered, government cover-up. Bam. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it takes on a life of its own. Leave it to so, Friedman to start that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty I much. like Stanton Friedman. I'm just saying, yeah, you know. Yeah, I know it. But over the years, books, articles, television specials brought the 1947 incident to huge notoriety and by the mid 1990s uh public polls for example a, a 1997 cnn time poll revealed that the majority of people interviewed believed that aliens had indeed visited earth and that aliens had landed at roswell but that all the relevant 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 
It's a relevant. relevant in the room. Look at the, look at the trunk on that relevant. <laughs> <laughs> but that all the relevant information was being kept secret by the U.S. government. So most people bought into the fact that this this was all true. Sure. So from 1980 to, 90, to 1997, members of this group published several books, including The Roswell Incident, UFO Crash at Roswell, Crash at Corona, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, and The Day After Roswell. Now, these works laid out the theories that not only had alien crafts landing on Earth, um, but that the alien bodies had been recovered and moved to the base at Area 51. Mm-hmm. All right, so in 1989, a man named Bob Lazar was interviewed by investigative reporter George Knapp on Las Vegas TV under the pseudonym Dennis and with his face obscured. Now, during the interview, Lazar discussed his employment with S4, a subsidiary facility he claimed exists near Nellis Air Force Base installation known as Area 51. Yeah. Now, he claimed that the, the facility was adjacent to Papoose Lake, which is located south of the main Area 51 facility at Groom Lake. Now, he claimed the site consisted of concealed aircraft hangars built into a mountainside. And he also said that his job was to help with the reverse engineering of one of nine flying saucers, which he alleged were extraterrestrial in origin. Now, he claims one of the flying saucers, which he coined the term sport model, <laughs> was manufactured out of a metallic substance similar in appearance and to touch like stainless steel. Now, he stated the propulsion of the studied vehicle ran on an antimatter reactor and was fueled by the chemical element with atomic number 115, which at the time was uh, provisionally named something I can't pronounce. <laughs> yeah. un unpentium is is what it was called. That sound about right to you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's close. I mean, I don't know that I could say it any better, but... <laughs> now, uh, Element 115 had not officially been created yet. Right. Okay. Right. And it was actually first synthesized in 2003 and later named Muscovium because it was done in Moscow. Isn't that um, crazy? Like, that's one of the, despite all the rest of it, that stuff is crazy to me that, you know, he pulls out element 115, da da da, and then we are able to create it years after he I, says it. I know that, you know. To be totally honest, that is the one aspect of what Lazar has to say that sticks in my craw. Because mm-hmm. the rest of it, I can just kind of go, you know. I mean, especially when he gets talking about the hand sensors. You know, they had these sensors that could read your palm. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of technology was, you know, com- was was coming. You right, know? sure. I mean, you know, and in 1989, you know, I don't think you were impressing anybody with that. Yeah. Um, and like but, you said, but, there's things that you can debate with everything he says. Yeah. That if you want to be skeptical about it, you can be, and you can yeah. you can do that. But like you said, that element 115, that's the thing that you're like, how? If yeah. he's making it up, 
How? Yeah, because, I mean, even even if we're going back to just the 1989 interview, it was 2003 before we were able to artificially create this element. Exactly. Now, the crazy thing about muscovium is that it is highly unstable. Mm-hmm. Okay? It has a half-life of only 220 milliseconds. So crazy. They, they have not even been able to create a sample that lasts for more than a second. Right. Okay? Right. I'm like, how do you know you've actually created anything if it doesn't last yeah. for more than a second? Yep. That I've wondered that about a lot of these um, uh, things where they, in the the reactors and everything, that they say they created these particles. And I'm like, how do you know for sure? You right. know, it's not there. You can't see it with your eyes. How do you know it's there? In my head, you got all these guys in these big suits you know, with the little visors, you know, standing in there. Looks like characters from the Among Us game, you know, little visor, <laughs> yeah. big yeah. big suit. And they're going, all right, all right, now watch. Don't don't blink. Oh, I missed yep. it. Do yep. it again. Yep. We can't. Now, dang it, Phil. We told you not to blink. Why'd you have to <laughs> blink, blink then? Don't blink. You're going to miss it. Up, oh, up, oh, it happened yep. again. <laughs> you missed it. <laughs> but I swear what that was... Heck? I swear that's element 115. You may have missed it. <laughs> but if you smell, you can smell the remnants of uh, element 115. It leaves a certain, like, picante smell in the air. You know it's <laughs> element 115. It smells like borscht. Yeah. <laughs> smell that? 115. <laughs> smells like 115. <laughs> I'm going to make a new cologne. This is called element 115. Yeah. Ode day one fifteen. You will you will smell like this for less than one second. <laughs> <laughs> That's just axe. <laughs> That's every accent you put it on. It oh stinks God. for one second and then it's gone. Oh, so so okay. <laughs> so. Uh, so that's Area 51 in a nutshell uh, right. with with uh, with a side of Roswell. There you go. So you kind of know where we're headed here. All right, Adam, uh, let's take a moment and talk about tonight's sponsor, Native. Now, you know, this year, we're all looking for a fresh start. You know, everybody needs something, something new, you know, new goals, something you want to do for yourself. I know personally, um, I'm trying to, to take a little bit better care of my own health. Yeah. Um, you know, physically, mentally, everything, and and that that's my goal. And if if better health and taking care of your body is your goal, then Native deodorant is a good place to start. Sure. Now, Native aluminum-free deodorant is a great addition to your 2021 routine. Now, Native cares about what you put in under your arm. And that's why their deodorants ingredients list includes things you've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. Another plus, none of their products are tested on animals and almost everything is vegan. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, it's it's rare to find a vegan deodorant like that. And they've been tested on us. We're animals, but I know that's not what they mean. <laughs> Uh, you and I are animals, but I know that's not what they mean. <laughs> um, now, switching to native uh, from an antiperspirant doesn't mean that you'll have to worry about that midday BO either. 
Um, Native will have you walking around smelling like coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, or maybe even lavender and rose. And that's very true. When you go from one of these aluminum-filled antiperspirants, one of your fears is that, oh, great, I'm going to stink, you know, midday, and and it's not going to be the same. But I'll tell you, I've used that citrus and herbal musk one, and you do smell it all day. You're not going to start stinking. Yeah, you're not going to stink. Coconut and vanilla uh, has been my choice. Right. Uh, and, and it and it's great. You know, it you you really do, you know, you really do smell that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and and not like stinky body odor. <laughs> right, it's great. And you can choose from over 10 different scents. And you know, including their classics and rotating seasonals. So you're guaranteed to find one that you love, and that's true. You know, around Christmas a few months ago, they had like a peppermint scent. So there they're they're putting out new scents for different seasons. And Native Deodorant has over sixteen thousand five star reviews and has been featured in the Today Show for a reason. And that reason is because it works. Now you can make the switch to Native today by going to nativedo.com/grave and use our promo code Grave at checkout and you get 20% off your first order. Remember, that's nativedeo.com slash grave. Yeah, so Graveyard Tales listeners can get 20% off their first order by going to nativedeo.com slash grave and use the promo code grave. 20% off. What a great deal. It's great. Right. So, so Adam, let's switch gears and uh, let's talk about Fugo. All right. So, Fugo. Um, like Matt said, he gave you a rundown of that. So, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of Fugo. So, we got to look at the what, when, where, who, and how of these Fugo bombs. And I promise it will be pretty quick. Um, but once we do that, then I'll explain the theory that we've discussed for several years now. Um, Now, this comes from the Atomic Heritage Foundation, and it says on November 3rd, 1944, Japan released balloon bombs. It's uh, like Fusen Bakuden or something like that. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but it means balloon bombs. They released it into the Pacific jet stream. Now, they each carried four incendiaries and one 30-pound high-explosive bomb. Now, Japan's latest weapon, the balloon bombs, were intended to cause damage and spread panic in the continental United States. Now, the Japanese military scientific laboratory originally conceived the idea of balloon bombs in 1933. Well, the proposed airborne carrier research and development program explored several ideas, including the initial idea of balloon bombs, according to Robert Mikesh. Um, his scholarly report on these Fugo balloons is a de- definitive work on this obscure topic. So you can go look up stuff by Robert Mikesh, M-I-K-E-S-H, if you want to get a little more detailed about it than what we're going to do. Um, now, the idea of the balloon bombs returned when Japan sought to retaliate after the Doolittle raid, which revealed Japan to be vulnerable to American air attacks. Now, the 9th Military Technical Research Institute, better known as the Naboruto Research Institute, was charged with discovering a way to bomb America, and they revived the idea of Fugo. 
They designed balloon bombs to be launched from Japanese submarines on the west coast of America. Now, the joint Army-Navy research into this operation came to an abrupt halt, though. Um, When every submarine was recalled for the uh, Guadalcanal operation in August of 1943. So originally, the idea was release it from um, submarines, but they got diverted to something else, so they just put a halt to that. Well, new efforts were then focused on designing a trans-Pacific balloon, one that could be launched from Japan and reach the continental USA. In the winter of 1943-1944, meteorologists, with support from the engineers tasked to develop trans-Pacific balloons, tested the winter jet stream. They discovered that a balloon could hypothetically travel, on average, 60 hours on this jet stream and successfully reach America. This discovery greenlighted the mass production of 10,000 balloons in preparation for the winter winds of 1944 and 1945. Now, the balloons were to be made of washi, a paper made from the bark of the kozo tree, and schoolgirls from neighboring schools were to be the labor force, conscripted as part of the total war effort mindset that came out by the Japanese Empire at the time. And the girls, however, would not be told what they were making. They were just... (laughs) No, yeah. Hey, guess what? (laughs) Yeah. It was like, just sew these things up, and we're not going to tell you we're going to use this in war. Um, Now, finally, this says, on the auspicious day of November 3rd, 1944, chosen for being the birthday of former Emperor Meiji, uh, the first of the balloons were launched. Launching proved to be difficult as it took 30 minutes to an hour to prepare one balloon for flight and required approximately 30 men. Now, in addition, the balloons could only be launched during certain wind conditions. Um, In the months of November to March, there were only 50 anticipated favorable days, and they expected to launch a maximum of 200 balloons for their three launch sites per day. But in going over this... Some sources actually say that between November of 1944 and April of 1945, the Japanese military launched more than 9,000 of these pilotless weapons in an operation that we talked about named Fugo. So it's hard really to know the actual total um, because there's conflicting mm-hmm. evidence and, you know, it, it's hard to get an exact number this this long afterward from somebody who was your enemy at the time, you know? So you're never really going to know, but up to 9,000 of these. Now, despite the launches being top secret, once released, balloons were not hidden to those in neighboring areas. Witnesses remembered these, quote, giant jellyfish drifting off into the sky, Mikesh details. Now, Two days after the initial launch, a Navy pilot off the coast of California spotted some tattered cloth in the sea. Upon retrieval, they noted its Japanese markings and alerted the FBI. It wasn't until two weeks later, when more sea debris of the balloons were found, that the military realized its importance. Then, over the next four weeks, various reports of the balloons popped up all over the western half of America as Americans began spotting the cloth or hearing explosions. Now, before I go on a little further, you're probably thinking, how did these do that? Um, Well, we'll put pictures up on Patreon of the actual balloons. You can go look them up, too, if you'd like. Um, 
but it's a giant balloon mm-hmm. and then it's got cables coming down from it and then below it almost like a hot air balloon it looks like a miniature hot air balloon there is incendiary devices on the bottom and then on the outside of it are ballasts ballast bags filled with sand and the ingenious thing about these balloons is that they had an altimeter on them so they would go they'd fly up with the um, jet stream get into that jet stream and go along but then if they started to drop too low that altimeter would read and it would release a sandbag and so it then float back up because as we all know helium or whatever gas you use is going to escape mm-hmm. the balloon so after a while it will start to drift down so they had little altimeters and quick release valves basically that would cut these ballasts loose to keep it going up and not fall too low. Now, to go on, this says that the initial reaction of the military was immediate concern. Little was known about the purpose of these balloons at first, and some military officials worried that they carried biological weapons. Now, in December 1944, a military intelligence project began evaluating the weapon by collecting the various evidence from the balloon sites. An analysis of the ballast revealed the sand to be from a beach in the south of Japan, which helped narrow narrow down the launch sites. So by looking at the sand, they were able to tell where in the world these balloons were started because of the the sand. That's pretty freaking brilliant. Right. That they were able to analyze the sand and determine that it came from a Japanese beach. Right. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, that, it's cool, though. Oh, yeah. It's really cool. Um, now, they also concluded that the main damage from these bombs came from the incendiaries, which were especially dangerous for the forest of the Pacific Northwest. Now, the winter was the dry season, during which the forest fires could turn very destructive and spread easily. Yet overall, the military concluded that the attacks were scattered and aimless. Well, because the military worried that any report of these balloon bombs would induce panic among Americans, they ultimately decided the best course of action was to stay silent. So this also helped prevent the Japanese from gaining any morale boost from the news of successful operations. Now, on January uh, 4th, 1945, the Office of Censorship requested that newspaper editors and radio broadcasts not discuss the balloons. In February 17, 1945, the Japanese used Domain News Agency to broadcast directly to America in English and claim that 500 or 10,000 casualties, the news accounts differ, had been inflicted and fires caused all from their fire balloons. Now, the propaganda propaganda largely aimed to play up the success of the Fugo operation and warned the U.S. that the balloons were merely a prelude to something big. Now, the American government, however, continued to maintain silence until May 5, 1945. In Bly, Oregon, a a Sunday school picnic approached the debris of a balloon. Reverend Archie Mitchell was about to yell a warning when it exploded. Sherman Shoemaker, Ed, uh, Edward Engine, Jay Gifford, Joan Patsky, and Dick Patsky, all between 11 to 14 years old, were killed, along with Reverend Mitchell's wife, Elsie, who had been five months pregnant. 
Now, they were the only Americans to be killed by enemy action during World War II in the continental United States. So that that's just saying there. I mean, you look at that in Bly, Oregon, mm-hmm. a bomb landed live ordnance on board and it actually exploded when mm-hmm. people messed with it. So keep that in mind as we go through talking here. Um, now, to this day, historians believe not all balloons have been recovered. While most are likely lost in the ocean, residents of the Pacific Northwest are advised to be careful when exploring uncharted territories. As recently as 2014, a balloon was discovered in Canada, and it was technically functional. There you go. So, keep uh, again, keep this in six, mind as we go through. Six, seven years ago. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, that's and it pretty, was still functional. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and functional. Right. So while the balloons failed to be an effective weapon, they were a product of wartime scientific innovation. And when the first balloons arrived in America, they technically became the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. OK, so let's talk theory. Have you figured out where we're going? <laughs> right. If you haven't, we'll get into it soon. <laughs> we kind of pulled the curtain back right there. Right. You know. So I, I'm sure I'm not the only person that's going to have this thought. And Matt and I have talked about it for quite a while. But we haven't really seen anyone else talking about this. Yeah. You know, it, it's not been a a subject brought up much when you talk about Roswell. So Matt and I kind of wanted to do that. Yeah. So let's review real quickly what we know. We know that the balloons did reach American soil. We know that some exploded and some didn't. We know that the government kept it a secret for as long as they possibly could. Balloons were being found in the U.S. and Canada for years afterward, as recently as 2014. Roswell happened, the crash at Roswell, quote unquote, happened two years after the start of the releasing of these Fugo balloons. They found, quote, balloon pieces at Roswell. And there was a explosion apparently reported at Roswell, and that's what drew the attention to it, right? There's scattered debris. There was an explosion or whatever. Now, I want to preface this by saying I and Matt are not trying to say or convince anyone that the Roswell crash wasn't a UFO or that it wasn't a weather balloon. All we're doing is we're bringing this theory to the table because, like I said, haven't heard many people discussing it, and we want to talk about it, and we want to get y'all's thoughts on it, and then just get this theory out there. Yeah. So, Matt, let me ask you, what do you think of the is the possibility of Roswell being a Fugo balloon that exploded in the desert and the government wanting to hide it from the people allowed this alien theory to spread to kind of cloud people's thoughts so that they didn't say, oh, hey, you know, we got a a Japanese balloon uh, that attacking us, you know, and it made it all the way to Roswell and it exploded. What what do you think the possibilities are of that? So. I I love I love this this idea, mainly because it's. Adam's right. It's not something that you hear 
very frequently. And and when Adam, you know, when he threw this out to me the very first time, some four years ago, it, it was one of those things where I was just like, I love it. I, you know, I, 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 I dig this idea that this is a possibility and, and, and I'll tell you why, um, the, the whole idea that it was, it was somehow discussed that, you know, theoretically that it would be better to allow the American public to believe, you know, without telling them so that aliens had crash landed in New Mexico and the government covered it up than to actually come out and say there was a possibility of a foreign nation getting an explosive mm-hmm. all the way onto continental U.S. soil. Right. Okay? I mean, that, that whole idea of this will cause less panic if we just let them believe on their own that it's aliens. It's a crazy thought, isn't it? Yeah. Now, and remember, shortly after the 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 1947 Roswell incident, the story died. I mean, mm-hmm. it pretty well died, even though there was this idea, and there had already been reports of flying saucers in the area. Um, but but we've talked about that. You know that they're they're testing spy planes. You know at this at, at the base at Area 51. So the 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 reports of you know unidentified flying objects were common right i mean they were right. they were coming in left and right because there's all these odd planes flying super high and then bam this happens but you know what you're asking is what what is what do i think the possibility of this being you know a a, a good theory um you know, all those things that Adam mentioned are true. You know, they, they, those, all those things did happen. Um, we got to wrap our head around the fact that either one of these things managed to stay aloft for two years and crash right. at, you know, at that time in July of 47, you know, even if it was launched at its latest possible time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still going to have to stir around for a couple of years or it, it it landed and nobody noticed it. Right. And it sat out there untouched until something triggered the explosion that brought everybody's attention to it. And my theory on what it made it explode. Remember, they said uh, they think they found bodies. Yeah. So a wild animal could have triggered it if these school kids from Sunday school triggered it. A right. wild animal could have triggered wild it. Wild animal could have trigger, triggered it or, or, or some, somebody, a, a, uh, yeah, a, a person, a vagrant, you know, yeah. uh, just somebody just rolling through that, you know, is relatively off the grid and says, what the heck is this? Boom. You know, right. and now, you know, there's body parts, I guess, not meant to be gross about it, but you know, you, you stand that close to an explosive, you know, that mm-hmm. they're, they're not going to find a pristine corpse. No, you know, no. Um, but you know, those, those are the possibilities. And I think that's, that's what I, I lean toward. If, if we're thinking this way, that, that this thing was there, it was just one of the ones that 
flew into the airspace and mm-hmm. managed to touch down and not explode and was just right. laying out there on this ranch and nobody ever noticed it until yep. the explosion brought their attention to it. Um, I, I like that idea more than one just kind of lingering around in the atmosphere for yeah two years. That's a long time for that thing yeah. to be hanging around up there. Yeah, that's my thought is not that it stayed aloft, but that it landed and like the ones, you know, in 2014 found in Canada, it had landed and nobody found it and it was still uh, a live ordinance yeah. uh, up until the point of it exploding. And, you know, I, I like the idea of this being possible and we know that the government covered it up in the, the beginning until they just had no choice, but would they rather say this one Fugo balloon landed in the Pacific Northwest and, and it, you know, killed some people rather than saying, okay, we got, had that one land and then we had one make it all the way to Roswell, New Mexico mm-hmm. and land and it exploded and nobody knew it was out there for years. You know, I mean that, that shows, I guess a little more of the validity of the Fugo attack yeah. You know, so it could cause some more, I guess, fear in Americans in, in during that time that that this actually happened and that they were that vulnerable because that's the thing. They didn't want to be vulnerable, um, you know, to another nation. They they um, they tried their best to keep um, just the thought of the American vulnerability down. Um, now, one of the. One of the downfalls to the Fugo um, deal it is what it was constructed of. Um, the balloons apparently were a duller finish, and what was recovered at Area 51 was supposedly a shiny metallic. Yeah. So, okay, there there's a negative in the Fugo category mm-hmm. for it being a Fugo balloon. Right. But, I mean, they the the government themselves said it was a weather balloon, and any of the weather balloons you see are kind of a more dull finish than what they say they found. So even if they want to say it was a weather balloon, it doesn't quite match, but they're saying it's a balloon. Mm-hmm. That was their next story, was that it was a balloon. So we don't have to make too big a jump to think that it was a Fugo balloon that exploded. And it's funny, Er, uh, Irving Newton's description of the device was was more like a kite than Mm -hmm. a balloon. So, I mean, when 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 Brazel was was asked about it later, you know, he he went through, you know, the what the pieces look like. You know the, you know metal, fabric, and even even wood, um, which you know you got to think. You know if wood doesn't sound extraterrestrial at all. No, I mean you know it you wouldn't gotta, make it into the atmosphere. You right, know? and so you know I I, I don't know, but I, I I will say this. You know when when he was questioned much later about it, he said he wished he hadn't said anything about it at all. Yeah, you know, because he felt like you know it just became this this big nationwide story, and he kind of felt foolish about the whole thing, 
because he felt like he had just, you know, caused this, you know, this, this crazy, insane panic um, mm-hmm. that, that we were somehow being infiltrated by aliens. Uh, right. But, you know, it, it, that's how the story, that's how the story went. And, uh, you know, again, if, if you're doing something totally innocent, and you act guilty. <laughs> yeah. You're going to make people suspicious. Absolutely. So, you know, if it was something as innocuous as, you know, a weather balloon, you know, sent up by the military, why in the world was there a report that said it was a flying saucer? You know, and what, then what came out? Why quickly, did that come out first? Yeah, and and then yeah. they back off and say it's a weather balloon. Why right. did they say what it was at all? You know, why right. not just you know a week later go? Oh, by the way, this is what yeah. it was. Here's a picture of what we use. This is mm-hmm. what he found. This is what it's made of. Everybody, just calm down. Right, this is it. but they didn't do that. No, you know, and like you said, it it, it really weird that downed extra ter- extraterrestrial craft was the first thing that came out on the news that's right you know it's like why do you why do you go to that first yeah exactly why, why is that the first thing <laughs> yeah yep um and you know that that makes me say we we gotta touch on our thoughts on area 51 as well and you know, this may be controversial to a lot of people, but my thought on Area 51 is I don't think that after that initial Roswell incident, that if we have downed alien craft on the Earth, I do not think they're housed at Area 51. Because why would the government keep at a base things that they don't want us knowing about that the people are talking about being there. Yeah. You true. Know? I think if we have stuff like that, if we are doing reverse engineering um, on these craft to get our technology, my thought is that kind of top secret stuff is going on at Wright Patterson mm-hmm. or at Dugway. And Area 51 out there in Groom Lake is taking the fall for it to hide the fact that it's going on at Wright-Patterson and this other stuff. Somewhere else. Yeah, they're using it as decoys. It's smoke and mirrors. Yeah, I mean, you know, know, they're really good at the shell game. Oh, yeah. Where, where's the, where's the ball now? Yeah, where's the alien spaceship? right there. We know it's there. Ha ha. No, it's not. And, you know, except the fact is they never pull away the shell to show. Right. Um, right. But, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I, I feel like if, if, we, if we really want to think that it was extraterrestrial, if it, if it went to Area 51 at all, it wasn't there long. Right. Like a, a layaway spot. It had to go somewhere real quick. Yeah. And that's where it went real quick. And I'm with you that if you're if you're with if you believe anything Bob Lazar said, um, 
any research he did on reverse engineering would have happened at one of the other bases, either at Dugway or mm-hmm. Mike Patterson. Not there. Okay, yep. I, it just it, it's it, it's again it's hard for me to wrap my head around everything Bob Lazar says anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But if if, if you want to buy into it and you know say okay yeah he was involved in something, um, then it probably was not there. It, you right. know, it, it wasn't in that location, you know, because they, they didn't do as much development there. And I mean, what we know, what we know for sure, they didn't do as much development and construction of these aircraft there. They tested them there. In fact, exactly. in fact, uh, the U-2 was built in California and moved yep to Area 51 for testing. And it was so secret that they they built, you know, a specialized trailer to transport the parts so mm-hmm. that nobody would know what they were transporting from California, you know, into Nevada. Right. So, I mean, you know, the, they were serious, but the, but the plane was constructed at Area 51 and then eventually tested there yeah so i mean it's like you know okay the 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 development and everything was done elsewhere right you know so it's reasonable to think that if if all the if all the technology and all the idea happening was going on at another place then then reverse engineering would probably be going on at another place too yep that's my thought why would um you know it it I say Wright Patterson or Dugway, and that, that's my thought on it. But it's very possible that it's a place that isn't even known to anybody outside these black ops programs, you know, because why why allow it to be that public? And one, if they did do stuff at um, the Area 51 base there at Groom Lake, why would they continue doing it? especially up until today when you've got people that can get up to the outside borders of the base. Yeah. It it just it seems too risky. So I I feel like area 51 and and you made the the good analogy of the shell game where the government allows you to think, the government and the military allows you to think Area 51 is this real secret thing. So all of your attention is focused on that when someplace else is where they're doing all the stuff. Sure, they still, like you said, test stuff out there because it's an open desert. They've got a whole lot of land out there that they can do it on. So it's great testing grounds, but I don't think anything is housed out there has been in years, if ever, and you know I don't think they're back engineering anything there. Um, but I mean that's kind of a offshoot of what we were talking about. But exactly, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I'm I've been torn on thinking it's a possibility that it could have been a Fugo balloon. Or not for years now. As soon as I heard about the Fugo experiment, I was like, holy crap, what if? And 
I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't, like I said, I'm not trying to prove to you that it's Fugo and it's not an alien craft. I'm not trying to prove to you that it's not Fugo or, you know, that it wasn't a weather balloon. Just a discussion because I don't know fully. It, you know, I just, uh, it's a question and I'm baffled by it. Yeah, I know. It's it's just it's it's such a fun thing to discuss and talk about and and you know we know Adam and I know that we have listeners that are that have gotten way more involved into looking into Roswell and Area 51 and and we know that you know we're we're probably spouting off theories that you're going to be like no that's not right you know they said well, look we get all that you know we're we're having fun with this tonight you know cuz this is something that we've talked about and we're just pitching something out there to, you know, as really as food for thought, something that Adam and I have chewed on for a long time mm-hmm. and just never shared. Um, and, and, you know, like we said at the beginning of the show, we figured now was a pretty good time to, to, to kind of talk about it and share it and, and see what you guys think, you know, if, if it's even a possibility. Um, right. But, I mean, I, I, I have to laugh because if you – if you believe that it's a possibility that, you know, an alien ship crashed at Roswell, New Mexico, and the government snatched it up along with the crew and moved it and housed them at Area 51, then you have to be able to consider the idea that it could have been a Fugo balloon. Right. To me, right. It, to me, it is no less outlandish. To believe one over the other. Sure. You know, so you have to give it a fair thought at least. That's right. I mean, you know, and, and look, I promise I, I am, I am not one that's going to sit here. And when people say, you know, there's aliens at area 51, I'm going to go, no, I mean, I'm going to consider the fact that maybe, you know, yeah. there, a lot of people have produced, I'm going to say, quote unquote, evidence that, that something did happen and that the government covered it up. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea that the government could have potentially said, this is better. Let them yeah. believe this because this is better than starting a panic that perhaps either there's more of these balloons out here that are dangerous or, or that even two years after the end of the war, Something is sparking up, you know, right. J- Japan right. has somehow decided to get, you know, e- even after the surrender, Japan has decided to get frisky and send something else. Or there's some some weird militant offshoot mm-hmm. uh, that's left over that has, you know, that's trying to rekindle something, you know, wh- whatever. I mean, right. you know, that that the powers that be said, hell, just let them believe it's alien. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and that, that I mean, that's a humorous thought, if that's true. Um, and we discussed uh, this on one of our last um, one of our recent Patreons. And I, I don't think we fully discussed it on a main episode. So we will we'll touch on it. We, we were discussing the do we think that aliens have visited are visiting the planet earth and whatever. And, and 
you know, we discussed it. And one of my thoughts is, I think, yes, that there is something that we don't understand visiting the earth. But I don't believe that it's, you know, aliens from Alpha Centauri or another planet in our universe. I, I really believe that it, if there is something, uh-huh. then it's most likely from a universe close to ours. We discussed the multiverse theory uh-huh. um, that it's a universe close to ours that they're able to move through that fabric because I think in my pea brain, I'm an idiot. So, you know, keep that in mind when I'm discussing this, um, that it would be easier to find that wormhole into a neighboring universe than it would be to travel the thousands or tens of thousands of years from one solar system to ours and just happen to make it to our planet out of all the other ones that you'd pass, you make it all the way out here. Yeah. So my theory is, yes, there is something, but it's not planetary. It's universal visitors, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what do you guys think? You know, are, are, are Adam and I way off base or have we sparked a little bit of interest in you to go and look into this this idea of of uh, a Fugo balloon being discovered at Roswell and it, it being allowed to uh, to be believed it was part of an alien ship? Um, let us know. Yes. You know, let us know Please. what you think. And I'm sure I'm sure. We've got a lot of listeners with their own theories about what happened at Roswell, what may or may not be at Area 51. Hey, we'd love to hear them, too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so let us know. You you might have an even better theory than what we got. And if you yeah, do, that's the let whole us reason know. for this episode is to get you guys to tell us your theories on Roswell. Yeah, that's right. And on Fugo. We want you to think about it. You know? right <laughs> but if you have a story if you have a theory if you have an idea or if you just want to tell us we're full of baloney uh <laughs> the best place to do that is in our facebook group and you can go on facebook search graveyard tales uh you're going to find the show's official page but then you're also going to find the graveyard which is uh what we've named our facebook group and we're about five thousand members strong maybe more um it's a good place for open discussion. It's a friendly place. No one's going to pick and make fun of you for saying something. Uh, if you got an idea, just jump in there and share it. Um, you can right. also you can also find us on uh, other social media, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, as I've said before, Adam is the chief Twitter around here. Yeah, um, I'm not on there as much as the other ones though. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, Twitter can be a cesspool. That's right. Um, so I try to I try to avoid the cesspool that is Twitter. Um, it there is posting on there, but if you want to contact, the best place would probably be Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but while you're tooling around looking for graveyard tales on the internet, you can check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com. And there you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, everything from T-shirts to coffee mugs to baby onesies. Uh, You can also listen to the show. You can learn a little bit more about Adam and myself. 
Uh, and you can become a patron. And this is where we thank everyone who has donated to the show. This is how we keep yes. going. And uh, we keep producing um, more and more content uh, and keeping it at the quality that we like and we know you appreciate. Absolutely. Thank you all so much. Yep. So until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. <laughs> you should have. You should have left it. That's <laughs> not me. I'm not the one to leave it alone. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.